0: Hello! Now, usually I don't do this, so apologies, but you're hearing me prior to this episode because I'm here to plug the Patreon. And I'm shamelessly doing that because it's a pretty amazing time to get on there if you're interested in more episodes, because there's a lot on there right now. If you subscribe, there's currently another 27 episodes that you can access. That's right, 27. Seven of those are unique bonus episodes that will not be released on the main feed, including from the Softbank series, the Teot Walkie specials, our book club episode on the Attention Merchants, and a unique pilot episode of a new Black Mirror-inspired series that I haven't released yet. And the remaining 20 episodes on that list are early release episodes, which include another 8 on this Climate 201 series, including the end of the series you'll listen to today, two more in-depth book reviews, two twinkly and unusual philosophical episodes about the meaning of life, a two-hour interview about whether the world's really getting better, and the first half of our series on cosmology, That's seven episodes covering the entire history of human thought about how the universe is and how it's evolved over time. What's more, if you are subscribed, new episodes are released to you pretty much the second I finished editing them, so you will continue to get a regular stream of episodes many weeks ahead of the main feed. And all of this really doesn't cost very much at all. The way things are set up at the moment, I only charge for unique bonus episodes, and you can set a monthly cap on donations so that you're not being charged more than a couple of dollars a month if you don't want to be, although I am grateful to people who have set their limits at a higher amount. You will also get opportunities to directly message me, comment on the episodes, discuss things with other patrons, and first dibs when it comes to me asking questions about the future of the show, or putting questions to future interview victims if you sign up there. I know, I know, it's boring to hear people plug all this stuff, and it feels a bit like a shill to say it, but the reality is that producing this amount of content takes huge amounts of time, effort, and energy. I'm a big fan of podcasts and podcasting, and I try to support the ones that I love the most, especially by the independent creators who I know aren't going to be backed by hundreds of millions of dollars or get some big Spotify deal like Joe Rogan or something, and I do that purely out of principle because I know now, having done it, just how much work gets put in, and I know how independent creators can easily disappear otherwise. We're not big enough to run ads on a regular basis yet, so this is the only way I can sort of rely on listener support, both to spread the word about the show and to cover costs, whether that's hosting or just another cup of coffee so that I can edit another few hours of audio. The Patreon is a great way to do this in a way that allows me to also give you back something. I know that for a lot of people, especially right now, it's not an expense that you could afford even if you wanted to. If that's you, please don't give me anything that would otherwise be spent on much more important things. I appreciate people sharing the stuff we do, and reviewing it, and other such little acts that help boost our profile too. But if you do enjoy what we do, and you are in a position to help, and you would like to help out, then you can subscribe at patreon.com physicalattraction, and the link there is on physicspodcast.com or on our Twitter at physicspod, so there's plenty of different ways to subscribe and get access to those 27 brand new episodes. Okay, done with the plug. Do also stick around after this episode too, because we're running a promo for another podcast, the Strange Animals podcast, which started around the same time as us, and once you finish this podcast and you're looking for another one, that may also be of interest to the biologists amongst you. We're now launching into this series of episodes on Project Drawdown, promoting individual solutions to climate change, and we're going to talk about how they can all contribute there advantages and limitations. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Climate 201 by Physical Attraction. When I first mentioned that I was going to do a series of episodes on climate change and asked my audience what they would like to see, one of the pieces of feedback I got was that people were very keen to hear about solutions to climate change as well as just the science of the problem. So this is part of my motivation for talking about Project Drawdown, which is essentially a project that began with a book, which tried to get people to focus on some of the practical changes across various sectors that we can take to reduce the impact of climate change. You can visit their website at drawdown.org, which has more detail, as does the book but we'll talk about just some of their research here today. What I like about Drawdown is what I also liked about one of the better books on climate and energy issues that's been written so far, which was David McKay's Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, which is that it's simple analysis, really, but it does at least make things somewhat quantitative. The reason that that is important is all too often we don't ground our discussions on this kind of issue in quantitative terms, but instead focus on qualitative things, visible issues instead, regardless of whether or not they're actually the most important thing to be thinking about. David Mackay, back in the day when he wrote that book, was frustrated by government and public awareness campaigns that urged people to unplug their mobile phones so that the little standby lights on the chargers weren't wasting electricity. In his book, he quotes a political party's manifesto, which said that, quote, if everyone in the country switched off their mobile phone chargers, it would save enough electricity to power 66,000 homes. That sounds impressive, But only because you're multiplying by the 60 million people in the UK. When you look at it as a percentage, it's half of 1% of household electricity consumption, which is a very small fraction of our overall energy consumption. So, in other words, it's barely worth thinking about in your discussion, and certainly doing this, even if everyone did, would do almost nothing to address climate change. And so the thing that he said at that time was, every little doesn't help. If everyone only does a little, we will achieve only a little. The focus on some of these incremental or symbolic gestures rather than big structural or systemic changes has long been a concern for environmentalists. After all, if my electricity is coming from renewables rather than fossil fuel power plants, the CO2 emissions from my electricity consumption will fall by 90 to 95 percent, and the half a percent from mobile phone charges is really irrelevant in the scheme of those things and those transitions that we might want to make. You would hope that a good communication strategy would at least focus on the areas which have the biggest impact first, but many do not. Quite often this is for understandable reasons because these areas aren't necessarily something that any one individual can always influence. But even when it comes to things that individuals can influence, there's still a lot of miscommunication. Yes, turning off mobile phone chargers is using energy more efficiently, but it's irrelevant compared to say, getting better insulation on your home, or when you choose to buy products, buying those that are more energy efficient than others. And I think this is really part of a broader theme of why it's so often difficult to have decent quantitative discussions in terms of our politics and in terms of the way that our societies have run. One of the most educational infographics I've seen detailed the UK governmental budget in terms of income and expenditures. For all the discussion about benefits that go to the unemployed or foreign aid to other countries or money that used to be paid as a membership fee to the EU, you might think that they represented a large chunk of the budget. But when these figures are expressed in millions and billions, of course, it can always sound impressive because we don't really know intuitively how many millions or billions is a reasonable amount of money for the government to spend on anything. But the reality is that unemployment benefits accounted for just 0.4% of UK government expenditure during that time, foreign aid just 1.2% and EU membership was just 1.1%. All of post-secondary school education, post-high school, accounts for 0.8% of the budget. Pensions account for 17.1%, while defence accounts for 6.4%. So the real question is, how many of those numbers would you have guessed in advance? I probably would have overestimated the military and maybe even the pensions budgets, and underestimated the amount that is spent on, say, technical and managerial staff in the NHS. A study in 2014 illustrated that a lot of people feel the same way. It showed the gap between people's perceptions and reality. For example, on average, UK citizens thought that the contributions for EU membership was 7% of the budget, and it was actually 1.1%. This obviously illustrates some of the political consequences that we can have in terms of our quantitative misperceptions. Regardless of whether or not you think Brexit was a good idea or a bad idea, the fact that the nation, on average, was out by a factor of seven on how much membership of the EU cost presumably had some impact on how we all voted. Similarly, people overestimated the aid budget by a factor of five, and underestimated the healthcare budget by a third. Because the public perception, the narrative that we hear a lot, is that we spend lots of money on foreign aid, and the NHS is chronically underfunded. The point here is not to say that people are stupid for not knowing these numbers. There's no reason you would know these numbers. But the point is that the discussion is almost always qualitative, and focuses on certain issues, regardless of how important they actually are. When these figures don't get discussed, especially when something similar happens with the environment, we can end up spending a lot of time in the public discourse talking about the wrong thing. Mackay's book came out in 2007, yet this inability to think quantitatively is pervasive even to this day. A recent survey by a company in Germany gave people a list of actions they could take to reduce their personal impact on climate change. Now again, I don't really like the framing of carbon footprints too much because I don't want to overemphasise the responsibility of individuals, but I think this will also extend to organisations, corporations and governments too to an extent, because you have to remember these things are made out of people, So the real question is, how many MPs would have a better understanding of the budget that is being allocated in the UK? That would be another interesting survey to see. So this survey by the German company gave people a list of options to reduce their carbon footprints as follows. Energy efficient heating, cooling and insulation. Avoiding one return trip by aircraft per year. Eating less red meat. Fuel efficient driving. Buying local and seasonal produce unplugging used electronics to stop standby lights from going on, and no more plastic bags. And they said, tell us which of these options do you think is the most important at reducing your carbon footprint? Now, 22% of people suggested that reducing plastic bags was the key, more than picked any other option. This is, of course, largely due to the massive media campaign around plastic bags, plastic waste, and plastic straws in recent years. And this has led people to massively overestimate the impact that this has. Total elimination of plastic bags would reduce the carbon footprint in Germany by just three kilograms per person, while the energy-efficient heating insulation would reduce the carbon footprint by 770 kilograms per person. It's over 200 times more important in terms of the actual numbers, in terms of the impact that it has on CO2 emissions. There are obviously other reasons to get rid of plastic waste, not least its other environmental impacts, but the fact that so many people overestimate its impact on climate shows you that our communication on these issues needs to be more nuanced and more quantitative. So this is why I like Drawdown. You can argue with its methodology, and you can pick holes in the way that they come to the numbers they come to and believe me, there's plenty of academic literature on coming to each of these numbers, and you're always going to lose some nuance and bury an awful lot of assumptions about how technologies and methods can and will be deployed and so on. So you really shouldn't take an analysis like this as total gospel, it's really just one way of coming to the set of numbers. But it does provide a starting point for the kind of quantitative discussion that we really need to have to figure out which solutions need to be prioritised for companies, for individuals, for governments, what we should spend a lot of time talking about, And I think some of the solutions that are considered are surprising. And then when we talk about the assumptions behind these figures, we of course realize the true scale of the action that's required. For example, this is the CO2 saving that we get if every farm in the country adopts this new technique for pasture and so on. So I will talk about some of these solutions in more depth in order of how Drawdown ranks them. If we keep all these caveats in mind about how the precise figures and ordering can be disputed and bury some assumptions, we can have an interesting discussion about solutions. So looking at their scenario two, which aims to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, they rank solutions in terms of tons of CO2 equivalent that are avoided or sequestered between the years of 2020 and 2050, by which point in these scenarios we'd be pretty close to net zero emissions. Everything that we talk about in this series then is going to be in terms of changes that we can make over the next 30 years, and as I'm sure you can appreciate over the next 30 years we're going to have a hell of a lot of changes that we're going to need to make. Note again that the CO2 equivalent metric is trying to take into account different greenhouse gases, including methane, and of course there are some subtleties as to how you can do this. See our episode on greenhouse gases for a more in-depth discussion of that. And while I'm just going to briefly overview the top solutions here, it's worth pointing out that they all have technical details and documents prepared for each of these solutions on their website, which goes into a little more detail about how the figures are arrived at and how the assumptions are made to get to those figures. So if you want to know a little bit more, I would suggest going to the Drawdown website to find out. Now, the other thing to say before we get started is that we're going to talk about billions of tonnes or gigatons of CO2 here. And I realise that these figures aren't always totally transparent. So a good rule of thumb to bear in mind is that our emissions at the moment are around 40 billion tonnes of CO2 a year. So every year we dump around 40 billion tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere and that there's maybe 55 to 60 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent when you include emissions of methane, nitrous oxide, and so on. So these are good figures to keep in mind when looking at the scale of these impacts. So if something saves 60 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent, then it's the equivalent of reducing our emissions to zero for a year, say, in the course of those next three decades. The top 10 solutions, then. At number one, they have onshore wind turbines, which they estimate could avoid between 47 and 147 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. The initial investment that they estimate would be needed to deploy wind turbines on this scale would be around a trillion dollars globally, but they also estimate that over their lifetime, the wind turbines would account for between 4 and 10 trillion dollars of operational savings. They note that with costs falling all the time, these costs may well end up being an overestimate. Put onshore wind but that it's important to use the land surrounding these turbines for something practical like grazing land for cows for example. At number two we have large-scale solar photovoltaics which the estimate will save between 42 and 120 gigatons of CO2. By 2050 Drawdown's book foresees solar PV making up between 20 and 25 percent of the world's electricity generation mix and again you need upfront investment here of between three and five trillion dollars to make this happen. But in the long run Operating these power plants without fuel gives you a much lower levelized cost than fossil fuels in many locations, and their estimates suggest that between 13 and $26 trillion would be the worldwide lifetime operational savings from these projects if the energy and investment is made. So it's no surprise that solar and wind do come right at the top of this list, but it's worth pointing out that the large uncertainty in how much CO2 can be avoided owes to uncertainties about what happens in other sectors of the economy, even as solar and wind are deployed more extensively. To get up to the maximum end of that CO2 saving, you need large fractions of the demand side to be electrified, using electrical power that can be generated renewably, and you also need sufficient transmission and storage infrastructure to be built to allow you to have this big fraction of electrified end-use for energy, and also this big fraction of renewable generation for electricity in the first place. At number three and number four, we see the impact of what we eat on greenhouse gas emissions. Number three is about reducing food waste. According to Drawdown's research, a third of the food that's currently produced ends up never being eaten, which accounts for around 8% of global CO2 equivalent emissions. This is obviously scandalous in a world where we still have hunger and starvation going on, but it's bad for the climate too, because all of the energy consumed in producing that food is effectively wasted. Agriculture drives deforestation in a lot of cases and a lot of places, so there's often additional deforestation that is happening, purely to produce wasted food in this system. Also, if this wasted food goes to some sort of landfill, the bacteria that break it down are often sources of methane, which is, of course, another greenhouse gas. So the solutions here are pretty obvious. In lower-income countries, we need to invest in much better transportation and refrigeration infrastructure, which prevents food from spoiling before it can reach any end consumer. Typically, in lower-income countries, that is the biggest problem when it comes to spoilage and waste of food. And in higher-income countries... The main culprits are households and final consumers who waste 35% of the food that we end up buying. So we need to stop buying food that we won't eat and throwing it out, and if food isn't going to be eaten, we need to find better ways of dealing with it and processing it. That's the long and short of it. By far the largest impact on CO2 emissions from this is the deforestation that we get to avoid by reducing the land footprint of agriculture. Drawdown estimates that between 50 to 75% of food waste is avoidable, which you think would seem eminently true to me if we waste a third of the food that we end up buying, that we should be able to avoid at least half of that. At number four, then, we have another often discussed problem, which is switching to plant-rich diets, which Drawdown estimates could avoid between 65 and 92 gigatons of CO2. Here, about a third of that comes from avoiding deforestation, while more simply comes from no longer having cattle and sheep that produce methane in the quantities that they do. So their definition of this plant-rich diet is around 2250 calories a day and no more than 50 grams of red meat a day. That's actually quite generous. Should the mood take you with this non-plant-rich diet, you could have a burger every other day or perhaps a couple of steaks a week. Substituting red meat for white meat and plant equivalents is obviously the way to go here. In this, the world is currently very much trending in the wrong direction. As nations like China get wealthier, we see that they are increasingly moving to diets that Westerners have enjoyed for decades, with increased meat consumption, which is driving these agricultural emissions and demand for meat higher. Now I realise that this is a very contentious topic, and Drawdown also acknowledges that the behavioural and cultural inertia that comes with eating as much red meat as we do does exist, and that there's a very large industry that depends on eating and making red meat, and this can perhaps even be much more difficult than the inertia that we have to consider in other systems. Replacing power plants requires a smaller number of different actors. Whereas right, was getting 50-75% to 75% of the world to switch to this plant-rich diet requires you to convince a great many more people to change their behaviour. One thing I would say is that I think a key aspect is knowing and planning what you eat is probably a much easier step than immediately switching from a lifetime of eating meat to vegetarianism and veganism. I'm not really in a position to shame people for not being vegetarians, and I don't really think it's productive to do that either, but I think if you... You can't change or control or think about what you don't measure. So if you measure what you're eating and measure the uh, the ways that you're getting your produce and the kind of things that you're eating on a regular basis and then you start making some of these decisions with climate in mind I think it's very helpful. Next up in drawdown's list at number five is a solution called health and education. So essentially what they want to do is make education free and universal especially for girls and investing in resources for family planning and access to contraception and so on. Now, this is because in the world at the moment, uh, young girls are chronically undereducated, particularly in less economically wealthy countries. Not only would this increase people's general understanding of climate issues and their ability to adapt to climate change, but of course the main lever that's being driven at here is a question of population. Specifically, they estimate that if these health and education measures aren't taken, there could be an extra billion humans on the planet compared to the UN's central projection of 9.7 billion by 2050, and they suggest that as much as 85 gigatons of CO2 could be saved by these measures between now and 2050. I think it's worth noting here that there's a very disturbing trend in some quarters towards talking about overpopulation without appreciating, first off, the factors that drive CO2 emissions, and second off, the factors that drive rapid population growth. Rapid population growth tends to be strongly linked with poverty and patriarchal societies where women don't have rights, access to independent education or incomes, or access to reproductive healthcare. So anyone who even begins to mention overpopulation as the problem when it comes to climate and the environment had better have an agenda that focuses on women's rights and alleviating poverty, or you know that what they're actually after is something vastly more sinister and much, much less effective at actually tackling problems surrounding the environment. Drawdown is keen to note that encouraging this is primarily about justice and equality, and any benefits to the environment are really side effects, and I think I'm inclined to agree with that. Now this isn't really an issue to shy away from, but at the same time I think pretending the problem is millions of people whose CO2 emissions are comparatively tiny compared to the vast majority of people listening to this podcast is obviously unfair, and it's another example of the lack of quantitative thinking that can plague these issues. And if it ever comes down to this sort of moral choice, you have to say that Exchanging people in the West's right to drive around in SUVs and inefficient cars and take flights and so on, versus people whose emissions are far less, their right to even live at all, is is put into question on climate grounds. It just seems like a a ridiculous and unfair trade-off if you want to make it that way. But, on the plus side, a co-benefit of alleviating poverty is that you would expect it to help um, prevent a much, much bigger expansion of population than you would have otherwise. The next solution then at number six is restoring tropical forests. Now we think about climate in terms of CO2 emissions from industry and from creating power, but land use change has also been a really important factor historically. What's happened to our tropical forests and rainforests is nothing short of catastrophic. At one point, tropical forests covered 12% of the Earth's land surface. That's now just 5%. Now clearly, if you can restore what's now degraded and destroyed forests into stable forests again, you have a substantial contribution to drawing down carbon dioxide, which is then stored in the forest as plant matter. But when it comes to planting trees again, I think it's important to remember that our actions really need to be done properly and also done on a truly massive scale. Tree planting is extremely popular as an environmental or climate policy even Donald Trump supported the UN's recent Trillion Tree Initiative, and there was a quite flawed paper which overestimated how much CO2 you could draw down from planting trees, which went very viral a year or so back. There were lots of articles about this based on this paper. The paper itself has been repeatedly rebutted, and indeed, it's one of these rare cases where, even though I'm a sort of very young researcher who doesn't know too much about anything, I read this paper and even I could see the flaws in it straight away. So how it passed peer review is is a bit of a mystery. But nevertheless, that that paper um, has been repeatedly rebutted, and I think the claims are over-optimistic to make the least. But nevertheless, the point is that it helped to spur a lot of the enthusiasm for tree planting. Now, this is part of a wider trend. Making grand announcements about planting trees is extremely popular, and people want to live in a world where that's all we really need to do. But a great many tree planting and forestry restoration promises simply don't ever get met in reality. So to make this more quantitative, Drawdown's research suggests that each hectare of tropical forest restored could draw down 4.4 tonnes of CO2 per year. Now consider that the per capita carbon footprint in the US, the amount per person that's emitted in the US, is around 16 tonnes, so each individual would need around 4 hectares of forest. To make the US entirely carbon neutral through tree planting alone, which is obviously absurd yet is somehow still being suggested occasionally, you would need to blanket the entire continental US, plus a few other small countries, in rich, dense, lush tropical forest. So it's not viable on its own. Realistically, even Drawdown's optimistic deployment scenario suggests that reforestation could account for around 2 to 3 gigatons of CO2 equivalent removed from the atmosphere every year over the next few decades. So again, it's a question of thinking quantitatively here. Optimistic estimates for the fraction of our current emissions that could be drawn down by reforestation if a massive global effort is made top out at around 5 to 10% of our current emissions. Should we do it? Absolutely, for all kinds of reasons we should do it. Is it going to be enough by itself? Of course not. And you can really see this without even needing to think that quantitatively or do the maths if you want to. First, you have to acknowledge that, yes, we've cut down, uh, you know, over half of the tropical forests that exist. So obviously we would need to restore all of them just to break even when it comes to how we've managed forests. And then, of course, you need to realise that we're burning fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are the accumulation of carbon from many centuries of plant and animal life which have died, you know, decomposed, and been compressed into coal, oil, and natural gas. So that means that the energy and the carbon that is locked in fossil fuels comes from hundreds of years of forests and hundreds of years of animal life. And in that sense, it's many generations of biosphere that is uh, locked up in fossil fuels. So you can sort of see how, even if we were to double the amount of uh, trees that currently exists on the planet, uh, this is only one layer of trees, whereas actually what we're burning is tens and tens of layers of trees, hundreds of layers of trees that have accumulated in the form of fossil fuels for a very long time. So it sort of intuitively makes sense that there's no reason to expect that Uh, there's as much carbon being burnt as there is locked up in the world's forests at the moment. And so I think when you see people saying things like, oh, all we need to do to fix the climate problem is plant trees and so on, I think people want to believe that this is true because everyone likes trees, no one is particularly concerned about where they plant the trees, providing you don't have to plant three or four trees in my garden, I'm happy about it. And there's a perception that we can continue with business as usual and the way we're doing things and we can carry on burning fossil fuels and driving around in SUVs as long as we plant some trees to make up for it. And it's simply not true. It's not possible to cancel out all of our emissions at the moment by planting trees alone. And then when you look at what's actually happened, there's a bit of a, there's a bit, there's even more of a disparity between the promise of what tree planting will achieve and what it's actually achieved. So let's get into that. Drawdown suggests that 300 million hectares of tropical forest could be restored by 2030. That's actually in line with pledges made by the UN. The New York Declaration on Forests actually pledged to restoring 350 million hectares of tropical forest by 2030. If this was done, Drawdown estimates that between 55 and 85 gigatons of CO2 could be drawn down between now and 2050. So, the dark side of this is actually how much progress is really being made on this front. The New York Declaration on Forests was endorsed in 2014 and it set these goals for 2030. They did a five year progress report last year in 2019. The report is subtitled A Story of Large Commitments, Yet Limited Progress. People have said that I have a dry sense of humour. I think when the phrase limited progress appears in the title of your progress report, it does tell its own story. So, what has actually happened in the years since that declaration? Well, deforestation has actually accelerated. For example, its first goal was simply to cut the rate at which we were losing tree cover from 22 million hectares a year to 9 million hectares a year. So, just slowing down how quickly we are deforesting. Instead, the rate at which we're cutting down forests increased to 25 million hectares a year, along basically the same trajectory from before the declaration. Annual tropical forest loss has gone up by 44% since these pledges were made. Of actual destroyed or damaged forests that were pledged to be restored, 170 million hectares were promised, but only 27 million hectares delivered by 2020. The report also estimated that annual tropical deforestation was causing CO2 emissions equivalent to the entire European Union. The point here is that we've had decades of grandiose promises about afforestation to save or restore natural habitats and to help tackle climate change. And instead, we're going in the opposite direction and the situation with deforestation is only continuing to get worse. All of the drivers and economic incentives to clear tropical forests and replace them with cropland or land to graze cattle are still there, with agriculture providing 15 times more funding than is allocated to forests at the moment. And developments since this report was compiled, such as the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil who has promised to exploit the rainforest as much as possible, have hardly made the picture seem any better. For this reason, Preserving and restoring tropical rainforest should be a major global priority, but it's hard for me to be optimistic that this is going to reasonably contribute a lot to climate mitigation when, as things are at present, we can't even slow down deforestation, let alone stop it. That's why claims and promises about tree planting and politicians going into gardens and planting a single tree often leave me exasperated. You have to actually take some actions rather than just talking about it. What's worse is that we can also often see perverse incentives taking place when this type of policy is implemented without care. The vast majority of my audience, like me, lives in the wealthy West, where we are insulated from our relationship with the land that's required to sustain us. But the way in which it's used, owned and dealt with is complex. Take the Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation, REDD, or RED project that the UN started in 2005. The idea here was to add a price signal into the market which reflected the environmental cost of cutting down trees which emit CO2 into the atmosphere, so people would be paid for keeping forests intact because they were locking up CO2 that might otherwise be emitted. Because of how this was implemented in some regions, there were often unjust results. In Kenya, the government evicted 15,000 indigenous people from their land on the basis that their farming practices contributed to deforestation. In other cases, land grabs are occurring where corporations and states buy up forests to get these payouts for refusing to cut the forests down, in a process that some have described as carbon colonialism. And in other red projects, the original forests can still actually be cut down, providing new ones are planted elsewhere, even though the science shows us that this is replacing a resilient and diverse ecosystem alongside a resilient store of carbon dioxide with something much less reliable and much less natural. In this way, we've often seen perverse incentives show up from even well-intentioned policies. And once again, it is worth noting with all of these nature-based solutions, one thing. Inherently, it may seem far better to naturally remove CO2 from the atmosphere by changing agricultural practices or planting forests, rather than building machines like direct air capture units that do much the same thing. But you also have to acknowledge that relying on nature-based solutions to draw down billions of tonnes of CO2 from the atmosphere a year would also entail shifting a large portion of the burden for mitigating and reversing climate change to a lot of developing countries, for example in the tropics, where the land is and where the forests are, and where these solutions would need to be implemented. So again, you can question the equity and justice of relying on farmers in poorer countries who depend on the land to change their normal practices, so that many of us in the West can continue to drive around in SUVs, fly abroad on holiday, and buy and use things that we don't need. This is of course part of a much wider debate surrounding environmental economics and how to deal with the environment in a world run by economists and financiers. If you put a dollar value on the rainforests, you are sort of arguing and admitting that it's acceptable to destroy them for the right price. If you don't, the market may well value them at zero or less than zero because profit can be extracted from their destruction and destroy them anyway, as we've found as deforestation continues apace. You see again, then, then, that although these are sort of presented as a list of individual actions that we can take, the solutions posed by Drawdown are all interconnected with each other. This preservation and restoration of forests would be easier if people ate less meat and wasted less food, and arguably all of these changes would be substantially easier if we had institutions and organisations in power that prioritised avoiding waste and environmental degradation over wealth accumulation. Next episode, we'll go over some more of the solutions that are dealt with in Drawdown and talk about how they can contribute to reducing CO2 emissions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attractions Climate 201 series. Remember, if you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form uh, on the website. Please do submit any questions, comments, concerns, things you'd like to hear about in the future, things you'd like us to cover, things that you would like an explanation of um, questions that you have about the show or about the topics we're covering. It's always good to hear from you and it does influence what I put in the show. You can also find us on the web at Twitter uh, at PhysicsPod. We have a Facebook page for Physical Attraction. There is the Science Podcast Facebook group which you can join up to and you can also support us via the Patreon page where there's bonus episodes you can download in exchange for a small fee every time a new bonus episode is released. That's patreon.com slash physical attraction. You can also find the link to that on physicspodcast.com. Things you can do to help the show include promoting us on social media, telling your friends to listen, and of course, having a good time uh, in your own life and staying as safe as possible in these uncertain, confusing, somewhat depressing times. Until next time then, please take care. Strange Animals Podcast brings you weekly, family friendly episodes about the world's weirdest and most interesting animals, alive, extinct, or possibly imaginary. From the dire wolf to the Dover Demon, subscribe and discover your new favorite animal on Strange Animals Podcast.